Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today I'm in the studio with some social distancing going on, as I'll explain in a minute. Uh, Parliament's already adjourned until August, so there won't be any debate in Canberra, but there certainly will be debate here as we try and find our way through all the wicked decisions that our leaders have to make at a national and state level. The debates that we're interested in are, for instance, is this a, a debate between population health and the economy, or is that a false, false dichotomy? Uh, we also have ex- dueling experts like John Ioannidis, who thinks we need more data, and Nicholas Taleb, who thinks that we should just go hard and go now. Is it flatten the curve for six months or is it a short, sharp shock like some argue? These are some of the debates that we'll be unpacking for your benefit. And also because there are lots of people who are now working from home, uh, our culture picks will go ahead. We look today at the magnificent John Wick series, specifically John Wick 3 with Keanu Reeves, uh, a new Netflix series called The Messiah. Um, which is probably what we need right now, and uh, a Spanish-language one called The Platform. Um, And to help us talk about these and work our way through the debates, I have with me, first of all, at least two metres away, Andrew (laughs) Bushnell, Research Fellow at the IPA. Thanks, Scott. Then, once again, down the line from the IPA bunker, still in isolation, is Dr Chris Berg from RMIT University. Hello, Chris. Hi, Scott. Much more than two metres away, I have to say. <laughs> yes. This is, yeah, well, there are worse places to be than, than Red Hill. There are. Be- there. Beaches are much less crowded than Bondi. <laughs> uh, very yes, good. If I, was, if I was legally allowed to visit them, you mean? <laughs> yes. So, Chris, uh, in isolation, you have had time to, uh, uh, to read uh, everything that's been going on. Start us off, please. Well, yeah, so like everybody on the planet, I'm consuming um, a massive amount of content about the coronavirus. Um, But I thought that we should start this conversation the way you framed it as well, which is the debate of the moment. And partly this is a debate that has kicked off because Donald Trump has been talking about it quite prominently. But it's obviously um, we have now shut down our economies um, in order to uh, uh, prevent the spread of this virus. the decision has been made very, very rapidly and uniformly almost across the entire world. The consequences of shutting down an economy are going to be extraordinary. We're not just talking about a recession anymore. We're talking about potentially a depression. And the debate that's going on right now is have we made the right decision? Is the trade-off worth it? I thought, Andrew, you've been thinking a lot about what this tells you about our value systems and the way we think about trade-offs between the economy, between public health and population health. And, um, uh, and, and I'd be interested in your views initially. Obviously, I've got my own, but, but what's, your, what's your perspective, Andrew? I think the, the phrase that, that Scott used before, that it's a, a false dichotomy to choose between public health and the economy, um, is an important way of thinking about it. Um, I know that the the Prime Minister um, last night said something along the lines of, we face two crises and lives are at stake in both. The important thing to understand here is that when we talk about the economy, we don't have some abstract concern for, you know, the system of creation and exchange of value or, or whatever else you want, however you want to define it. What we care about is 
uh, how individuals and families live their lives, how they prosper, flourish in this world. Um, and I would say that of those, those two crises, we can denominate them, if you like, in the same units. So what you'll hear from people who think that it is somehow um, inappropriate to talk about economic matters is that, well, on one hand, we're talking about lives, and on the other hand, we're talking only about money. But this isn't exactly true. You can think about the economic, impending economic crisis in terms of lives as well. Um, of the two crises, it's impossible to rank them. This is the, this is the thing that is really important. There is a non-zero probability of both, um, and you can't say which is more likely, and you can't say which is more severe. There simply is no data. You're operating entirely in the dark. Um, we have to think about it in terms of uh, operating under uncertainty and taking precaution against both. That's the trade-off, and that's what makes it such a gnarly problem. And it gets worse when you think that the actions you take against one crisis might beget the other crisis. So it's actually an extremely complex problem because the uncertainty is so abundant. Yeah, uh, and uh, I'd like to just uh, flag, you, you mentioned the word, you know, decision-making under uncertainty and risk, and I, and I would like to come back to that. But um, perhaps while we're still framing this, Chris, um, when you say we shut down the economies, I, 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 I don't think we have. Um, and uh, well, certainly in Australia and certainly not in the United States, I think uh, there is a... A debate going on right across uh, the world and certainly in the English-speaking world which we're closest to and um, uh, if we think about it as a continuum um, you might you might perhaps even put New Zealand up one end of that continuum uh, where I, I'm not sure whether they're described as stage three or stage four restrictions but um, uh, the New Zealand government's essentially you know put the dial up to 11 right now and all sorts of consequences flow from that. Um, in, in the UK, Boris Johnson started off with the dial on three and now it's gone to about eight. Um, so they've started to shut down, say, retail outlets, not just cafes and restaurants, but things like retail stores. Um, we haven't gone that far in Australia. Uh, you can still buy your electronics. Uh, for, you can still go to JB Hi-Fi. Uh, if you like, we haven't yet closed, had a mandatory closing of offices. So, this is, yeah. So and, I think I think these the, are live questions. That's why that's why we're debating them. You know. No, and, and this is and, and this is absolutely right. But um, it, the pessimist in me thinks that you can't just do a staged shutdown of an economy. An economy is, or or an economic system, or a social system. Uh, they are so deeply intertwined. You can't just say, well, offices are closed, but factories get to stay open. You know, you can't just say um, retail can stay open, but they can only do a delivery. But of course, the offices are closed. Maybe the warehouses are closed. Everything is so tied together. And we're talking in such broad brushes. And yes, you're, you're right that, that, that there's a lot of um, distinction between, you know, stage one shutdown and stage 10 shutdown, such as they are. I, I, I totally agree. I'm just making the point that we actually haven't taken that plunge in Australia, and I actually think uh, this, uh, and again, we'll come to it, this is partly the debate that seems to be playing out between uh, Scott Morrison and perhaps leading the pack on the 
go even harder uh, side of it is uh, Daniel Andrews um, uh, from Victoria. Uh, but no, we're not we're not actually there yet. We haven't closed. But going oh. but going to going to Andrews point, these are decisions that have been made with no information whatsoever. So we actually don't know. So na- National Cabinet sat last night and and they came out with a so we're recording this on Wednesday, so they sat on Tuesday night and they and Scott Morrison came up with a new range of rules and restrictions and it was quite obvious in the National Cabinet they just sat through a bunch of scenarios and, and thinking through different retail outlets and so forth and decided you know, these ones are closed, these ones are open and so forth. We actually have no idea and no information and no data about what the impact of shutting down any given transmission um, mechanism will actually be. It's not like we know how much slower a virus is going to transmit during the population if we keep beaches open or closed. Those marginal decisions they are made are making at the moment between say stage one and stage 10 or stage 30 shutdown we we have no idea how effective that will be yeah that's right Absolutely i mean the, no what idea. The, the uncertainty one of one of the many many uncertainties in all of this is how many people do you have to take out of circulation to break the chains of transmission so if you think about it i saw i saw a nice little uh, depiction of this on, on Twitter, if you think about it like a family tree, um, you have one infected person and it branches out from there to different, you know, infecting different people and those people again. Um, a nice illustration, I think, of um, exponentiality, which is something that I think most people in their everyday lives don't encounter all the time. So it needs to be visualised. How many of those people in that, once you have those branches, how many of those people do you have to take out before it stops branching out in a way that's um, catastrophic? And there's actually no way to calculate that. And I thought um, the response to um, the Prime Minister's um, press conference, I should say we're recording this on Wednesday, so I'm talking about the Tuesday press conference. Um, not the Wednesday, the Thursday, Friday. Yeah, not Saturday, the... Not the, the press <laughs> So I'm talking about I'm talking about uh, the Tuesday press conference, and um, one of the responses to that was, well, why is it that you know weddings are banned um, unless there's only three people, but you can have a classroom with 30 kids and things like that? And that the point or is a funeral that, with 10 yep. or a funeral with 10. And so if you look at it like that, on one level it's arbitrary, but on another level it's about taking people out of circulation. How many weddings are going to go ahead with only three people? How many funerals are going to? Um, how many funerals would have had more than ten people? These kinds of things, um, and of course, and then how critical are those different events? So there is a reason to treat them discreetly because the goal is basically to take as many people out of circulation as you need um, without um, throwing the entire econ- economy and in- indeed society um, out of uh, out of whack. So I think the 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 operating under uncertainty here this 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 idea that we simply don't know what it's going to take um, suggests that there will be and continue to be a, a range of measures that are essentially ad hoc as the government uh, as new data comes in um, as people's behaviour we start to observe people's behaviour in response to different rules um, the institutional environment will have to evolve rapidly and there will be an element of of ad hoc but it's all in service of this one goal which is um, disrupting the transmission of the virus 
Yeah, so this I'd like to yeah, I'd like to sorry to interrupt. I'd like to drill down a little bit on the idea that there's a trade-off here because I think the um and 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 Andrew, you're absolutely right that you know the economy isn't just some separate thing that just sits in a corner for a while. It's it's um uh you know it it, it is also a driver of health. It is also a driver of um uh, the social lives that we're all all missing at the moment. But I think it, it, you you take it. Imagine if they hadn't. Imagine if the government hadn't gone to the full shutdown or, or whatever whatever variation of shutdown that it's gone for. I think we would still be facing massive economic dislocation and disruption regardless. Because even if the government said, as Boris Johnson did for a short amount of time, that well, we're going to let this go through the... Um, uh, we're going to let the virus travel through the society. Um, we would be shutting down the economy just out of fear. We as individuals, we as the private sector. Yeah, um, I think that's right. We would yeah. all be going, we would all be working from home. Yeah. And I'm, we would be doing that without that sort of leadership and with almost no reason to believe that it would be effective. We would just be doing it from fear. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, there's the external factors and then there's, you know, the things that governments are doing in response, which, you know, are throwing sort of further sand in the in the gearbox but um i mean the challenge to this argument though that you know we have no information i'm not sure we we have no information but we have uncertain data and and we're relying very much on on models um and you know we talked a little bit last week about this imperial Co imperial college study which has attained the status of holy writ in britain and seemingly left boris johnson with nowhere to go at all because it came from experts the challenge to that came from um uh, professor john ioannidis who's um made a name for himself over the last decade, you know, talking about the general crisis in replication in, in science and the amount of, you know, junk papers that circulate and just because it's peer-reviewed doesn't mean it's right, and uh, particularly in, in medical fields. And um, uh, he came out with a paper where he, he said this is, this is case in point. You know, these are, these are models with you know, highly uncertain data plugged in at, at, you know, at the start um, and then he got slapped down by um, uh, someone who uh, I certainly listen to very closely, which is the um, uh, mathematician uh, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, um, who just said, "No, this is classic fat-tailed risk. You don't you don't have the luxury of waiting for uncertainty re to resolve itself um, because the way because the scenario being painted of exponential growth in infections is such that you have to act and you have to act early." And the downs he he claims, and this is this is what I'd like to test. He claims that the downsides of acting early are not great enough to dissuade you from doing so. You should just go for it. Um, and so, and he, uh, in his inimitable style, referred to Ioannidis as a classic intellectual yet idiot sitting in his ivory tower, not understanding that real people have to make real decisions now, not yeah. later. Well, the, for Taleb, the, the the point is that there's that the the system itself is at risk. You're, what you're betting is everything, um, and if you are, if the stakes are that high, you should probably walk away from the table if you can. Um, and so, but what what I think um, Taleb perhaps when he he jumped all over all over this argument is that um, I, I think his principle applies just the same way to the uh, uncertainty that we face around the economic collapse. So I, I think that um, Chris's point just before is well made that um, if we didn't intervene, the economy would have shut down 
anyway, to some extent. Um, but the logic runs the other way as well, that if the economy collapses, then the healthcare ca capability of the country collapses as well. Um, and this, is, this means that the, the precautionary principle, as, as um, Taleb defines it, actually applies to both cases and the two cases are related. And this means that we're in a very unhappy position of trying to find uh, a policy response that mitigates against both catastrophes or the twin catastrophe because they're related. Um, and that's why the emerging uh, consensus, now of course <laughs> this could change any moment any time, <laughs> exactly. but it seems Again, like that it, but, on yeah. But on Wednesday, as of Wednesday, it seems like it seems like governments are inching towards the idea that the flattening the curve period, the shutdown, and that's what the shutdown is about, is about reducing um, or extending the period over which people are are ill, such that it doesn't overwhelm at any one point um, the the healthcare capability of the country. The emerging um, decisions of government seem to be that this period has to be discreet. There's a dispute about how long it will be. On one poll, you have um, President Trump, who has seemingly lost patience already, um, and he wants the economy to be back up and running in the United States by Easter, he said today. Um, on the other hand, probably the other poll is if you, if you discount speculation from our own government about a six-month period, the Danish government's um, very strong intervention, um, which involves um, essentially spending 13% of GDP in a three-month window, that gives you probably the other poll. That's everything. That's throwing the kitchen sink at it for three months. So somewhere in that window, two, two weeks to three months, that's the shutdown. We shut down for that period and we think about the cost of that as buying time. That block of time is something that we are buying and in that period, we try and scale up our capability of treating people, identifying at-risk groups, isolating people who have the disease, finding out who's immune. Millions of test kits. Millions and millions of test kits. All of these things that we know we can't scale up instantly. We need to buy a block of time to scale them up. And that's what we're trying to do. But it is a block of time. It's not um, indefinite uh, because at a certain point, this other catastrophe, the twin catastrophe, the economic collapse that will itself also kill people, um, it has to be mitigated as well. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and so we've all, we're all familiar with this flattening the curve graph um, that was so common um, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> where it's got the hard spike versus the, the, the flatter one. I don't think of that. I don't think that's the way we should be thinking about this. We, we should be expecting, if what the epidemiologists suggest is correct, we should be expecting that the vast majority of the population will get this in a very short period of time. And what we are doing is we are delaying the onset of that, that sharp um, moment. There is nothing the government shouldn't do to spin up larger hospitals, to spin up more medical students, to spin up testing kits, to spin up masks, everything like that, so that all this incredible cost that we have levied on the hospitality sector, that we have levied on the services economy, has actually bought us something. 
Yeah. And what I'm worried, what I'm what I'm worried about when you hear Scott Morrison speak, or when you hear Daniel Andrews speak, or any of the other premiers and chief ministers, we're hearing a lot about the shutdown. And I understand that's the message that needs to be communicated to us, the public, but we are not hearing a lot about the massive amount of work that needs to be done yeah, in the healthcare sector. I think that's because I think that's because so if you think about it, there's actually two government uh, policies. Um, they've talked a lot about flattening the curve when they look at this chart, and that's because that's the thing that because it's essentially an omission, it's a negative thing. It's don't do anything. It scales up really easily, um, and people can do it themselves right now. So that's the message. Um, but if you look at the chart, of course, the goal of bending the curve, flattening the curve, is to get it to drop below a dotted line that runs horizontally across the chart. That line represents the healthcare capability, the capacity, specifically of the, the number of ICU beds. And exactly, and at the same, and at this, at the same time that they are telling us to stay home, they are, or they're supposed to be, trying to raise that line. That horizontal yeah. line should over time have some kind of upward gradient. Um, but and that's the graph that we're not being shown, isn't it? Yeah, but, that, and that's, but, that's, but that's because, is, but that's because it requires, it. That's because it requires um, positive things that don't materialise out of thin air. And there's no way of yeah. predicting, there's no way of predicting how that capability can be improved. Oh, I think, I think, in fairness, uh, there there would be numbers being supplied to government. I, I think Scott Morrison, if he said, "Give me a number for how many ICU beds we will have in a month's time with all the measures that we're taking," that that's a number yeah. that they but can. I think, actually I think it would mostly be. I, I, I think it would mostly be um, made up, and I think that oh. they have to plan for the worst case scenario, which is the worst case scenario is actually that that dotted line has a downward gradient. Um, yeah, because the services in the hospitals get worse. As as we've seen, I think I saw a statistic, um, of course, always be wary of things that you come across on the internet, but I think 20% of doctors in Italy or in Lombardy have yep, um, contracted kind of disaster. The, um, Chris, um, I do want to challenge, though, that uh, what you're saying, that flattening the curve is still the um, uh, the consensus policy of governments. Um, the, I've, I've spent a few, a few days, and I actually think there's, a, there's a, a subterranean sort of battle against that which is going on, and um, I'm, I'm disturbed that it's not more out in the open, and I, I commend um, uh, the science journalist and blogger Joe Nova for bringing it to the surface. Uh, she happens to be a proponent of a, of a counter view, um, and and she's distilled the essence of this because uh, I see references to it to it all over the place. This idea of um, and th- but this is grounded not in economics. This is not about population health versus economics. This is grounded in epidemiology, and it's it's simply the idea that uh, in order to short circuit the classic en- exponential curve, you must absolutely shut it down right at the start, isolate the virus literally so that there is no transmission outside of a designated region. If someone's got it in, in Box Hill or Mossman, they, that it's, it stays in Box Hill or Mossman. Um, and and uh, so if you go to Joe Nova's blog, she's got you know contrasting charts. So instead of a flattening the curve, it's, it's actually like a much 
um, a shorter duration, like you know, yeah. more like, more like uh, you know, seven or eight weeks, say, and and, th- and that's the suppression strategy. No, 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 no. I dis- I disagree. I think suppression is a word that you can still use in a flattening the curve, as 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 Andrew said. It's it's scalable. Um, we we every day we add more and more suppression measures. Um, whereas the what Joe Nova is saying is this won't isolate the virus. This won't break the cycle. We must do more right now. This is an argument for a total shutdown strategy. And and uh, and so this is people who uh, who see themselves on the side of the angels because they're saying we can't stand six months of this. And then I see yeah, well, I, I see Trump well, in some ways as being outside both debates. He's saying we can't stand six months of this and. But he seems less in, two weeks of it. But he, and 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 also, sorry, sorry. I I just want to lay it out because I think it's a really really important debate. The other thing that uh, and having laid it out, I'll then critique it. The thing, and I have a lot of respect for for Joe Novice, He does terrific work. But the thing it doesn't take into account is all of those things that Andrew talked about, which is not not only will we have more ICU beds, we will have more options for treating this disease in three months preventative and and in terms of uh, palliative care this, this is there's all sorts of things taking place all over the world and I'm a little bit trumpist in that regard Trump maybe he's oversold it but he's right there's a ha- you know the brightest minds on the planet are actually working on this I'm not sure we can bank on that I mean that's that this is this is the thing this is, and this is um, my inherent pessimism perhaps but um, I'm not sure that when we think about it now what we should do at, at this time T, I'm not sure that we can bank on time T plus 10 or whatever, T plus X, um, the knowledge being higher, the capability being higher. Um, there's other, there's countervailing um, problems with that, countervailing uncertainties. Um, that is mutations in the disease, um, the availability of equipment and, and drugs, um, false false results, false positives um, for, for different yeah, treatments. Yeah, just the, the, the downsides, the unpredictable downsides. So, of the so, so, so down. my, my view is that the government is right in the sense, it, when, when you come back to this this flattening the curve thing, which I've been pondering since I first saw it, um, because I think it says one thing very clearly and then you have to really think about it to understand exactly what it's, what it's communicating. But the um, I think the government is right to assume that that dotted line, that capability line, will be steady because it can't guarantee that it will have an upward ga- gradient. There's no um, robust set of reasons for thinking that it will, um, and we should plan. The other, the other thing that I would say about that as well is that um, when you think about that, the curve, no matter what, there's this, this question of how stretched to the right the graph is, how far into the future we're actually mm. talking. Um, and how long the effects of coronavirus linger. So even if um, we come up with with treatments um, that work, if the virus is still out there, people going in and out of infection, that's going to have an effect on um, obviously those people most importantly, but the the economy and society around them. Um, And so when we think about um, our, our intervention, we need to think about we need to assume that that tail is long, not just fat, but long. Like it just keeps going. It's a safer assumption. It may, um, may not be the case, but yeah, it's, it's a safer assumption. It's the, it's the safer assumption, I think. And I, I think governments are, tr- governments are desperate to err on the side of, 
of, of safety because not just not not just for their um, for frankly out of self interest they know that they will get pinged um, if if they look like they're um, blasé about this lingering effect. Um, so, and then uh, I think probably um, you know the, the, the relevant question for, for us as, as well is is okay. So, what policy interventions help us come out of this period of intense action um, in a, such a way that we're robust enough, strong enough to deal with this lingering effect? Um, and then I think not a lot of public debate so far is focused on what the end game is um, for coronavirus. Andrew, that, that brings to mind two things uh, for me. Um, what you, first of all, you, you talk about how we're going to come out of this, and, and, and this is why it's absolutely critical that we start planning now because I think uh, once these things... It's, it's always easier for a government measure to be put in place and to remove it. We know that. Um, that's why IPA always argues for sunset clauses and time limits and all these sorts of things. And again, Trump actually gets that. Um, I mean, he, we'll find out whether he's... he's time horizons are realistic or not, but I actually do commend him for saying, we're going to do X, Y, or Z for a period of time. Um, and and uh, we need to focus on that because what we do know, these are, these are wicked decisions, there's, there's terrible balances and weighing up of evidence. But what we do know about decision-making, uh, if you don't have the right perspectives in the room around the table then uh, you're not going to make the right decisions. It's just like in an abstract sense. You just know that. And, and so the two things that worry me about the decision-making environment that we're in is that uh, the National Cabinet listens to uh, medical advisers, but I'm not sure where the economic perspective comes in. And secondly, to the extent that, you know, the, pot, the elected officials themselves are meant to be proxies for that, uh, they wouldn't have a clue. You know, you know the, the political class is less connected to the real economy than it's ever been in our history. You know, if you look at the composition of cabinet and the people who sit around cabinet tables, uh, these are not people who have been drawn um, even in the glory days of, of the ALP governments, for instance, that, you know, got us through a couple of wars. Um, you know, these were people who'd worked their way up from the shop floor. Um, uh, or in uh, on the conservative side of politics, it might have been businessmen, farmers, small businessmen, you know, lawyers in commercial practice. Um, and, and now what we have is a political class. If we're relying on them to be proxies for, oh, the impact on the economy might be X, Y, or Z, uh, I submit that they wouldn't have a clue. But I also, I also think that we're asking them to do stuff that they have never been really asked to do for a very long time. So, for instance, you think through the average minister. The average minister is, in fact, effectively the CEO of an enormous organisation. And they have to make CEO-style-level decisions in the midst of massive crisis. And I think this, this crisis is going to reveal not just that they're disconnected from the real economy, but they are not very competent people at doing those high-level decisions, making emergency changes. And I think we uh, now I, I don't really intend to go through the cabinet and list them and some are obviously doing better than others. But I think it reveals that, yes, we do need elected politicians. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not at all arguing for technocracy or anything like that. But we need to demand that those elected politicians are also capable people 
at the jobs that we are asking them to do. I think they're perfectly capable people, most of them. In the, If you took them out of this context and put them into another context, most of them would be at least suitable for middle management or something. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think, <laughs> apart from one or two... Speaking as a middle manager, I'm not sure how to take that. Well, <laughs> apart, I, don't, I don't mean to, to be disparaging towards middle management, um, but what I mean is that... What I mean is that I don't look at um, our political class and think necessarily, um, with one or two exceptions, that these are people who, if you believe such measures, have IQs that slip below the average. Um, I think instead um, what we need is a political class that operates based on, dare I say, values that the rest of us share, ideally, or at the very least um, can uh, understand. Uh, and I think when we look at so you know when when Scott raises this question about the, the decision making, I have more confidence I think in the information such as it is that they're getting. So whatever information there is, I'm pretty sure that they're probably getting it in their briefings. Um, my problem with it is facts don't tell a whole story. Facts need to be interpreted, um, and on what grounds, given, given the genesis of this crisis, given how we've dealt with crises previously within my lifetime, on what grounds am I supposed to trust that even with the most reliable, best collected, best uh, aggregated data, that these people will make decisions with my interests at heart? And I think that's the, that's the disconnect. We've had this upsurge in populism that we've all spent three years debating. Populism is not going away because it's not, as has been framed, a fight against experts. People are perfectly happy to have the chief medical officer come up and talk them through the epidemiology. They're perfectly happy to accept that there are people who can gather this data and can understand what it is saying. They are not convinced that the people who ultimately make the decisions can look at that data and apply common sense, widely shared historical values that we know or have some confidence will produce good outcomes for the rest of us. And I think that's the gap. I think um, this crisis, like other crises in recent times, reveals that when it comes down to it, we do not trust them and by extension we don't trust each other we're not sharing a set of values that make crises make complex situations intelligible to all of us at the same time so we so we talk about some of those policy choices then um uh because what what is interesting about that point which i agree with andrew <clears throat> is that it's not totally clear to me and maybe this is i would not make a very good politician in this case, it's not totally clear to me how to what sort of value-driven decisions you would be making in the middle of a shutdown of the economy. So the, the reason I ask this is I, I'm in the unusual position as a libertarian who spent his career complaining that the government does too much, arguing and believing to my core that the government needs to drop everything and fix this. Um, and in those circumstances, and we've had this discussion ourselves, in those circumstances, I think I'm my my view is that the government should be doing a lot more to support 
not the economy per se, but to support employment and business. Now, that's not a, I'm, I don't feel like I'm driven by my libertarian values in saying that. I'm just um, uh, certain that there's really no alternative in this scenario. Yeah, if uh, we want to spin up the economy afterwards. No, no, that, that, that makes sense. There's two two things I take out of that. First of all, um, you're you're saying you're feeling a bit conflicted. The thing that I have been looking for, and I thought of this yesterday, is I would hope that my leaders at least have some cognitive dissonance about this. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I think um, I have observed that in Scott Morrison at least. So um, I was I was greatly disturbed by the example of New Zealand because I felt like. This was, and, and, and constant calls that, oh, we must go harder, we must do it now. You know, this, it just must be done. Um, I would at least hope that even if you then have to take extreme shutdown measures, you at least feel bad about it. This curtailing of individual liberties, putting police out on the streets, you know, like we've seen in Italy to arrest people in parks uh, and drag people off in the back of uh, whatever the Italian phrase for divvy van is. Um, I would hope that, uh, at least our elected officials would see that as being absolutely in contravention of our, you know, traditions of liberty that go back to Magna Carta. And I'm not overstating it. I mean, this is important. So, and I, and I get some of that. And even when Scott Morrison says, "Look, you could have some friends over, but not too many and not too often. But I'm not going to be prescriptive about that." That re- actually reveals someone who doesn't like to just keep coming up with rules all the time. Um, and then the other part of it, though, uh, which you were then sliding into, Chris, is the economics of it, which is exactly right. There's still these things still need to be debated and argued through because it makes a big, big difference whether, uh, as you pointed out, as say Denmark has done, you're giving wage subsidies to maintain the connection uh, of an employee to a business that you hope will be able to get back up and running in a few months, as opposed to just saying, oh, that's all right, they can, you know, just lay them off and they can go down to Centrelink and and you've severed that relationship. There there is absolutely scope for libertarian thinking there. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to talk, I'd like to talk a bit about that because, so the way it seems that it's evolved, there are two models of job support during this crisis. There's uh, the Australian model by and large or the US model is rely on supplement build up, but you know, rely on the existence of your existing unemployment insurance or social security model. Or, or so this is this is what happens if you lose your job because your restaurant has to shut down or your bar has to shut down. Then you apply for Centrelink, and we will we will raise the level of Centrelink that you're going to get, which is what the government has done. Um, I think it something like doubled it. Um, uh, but but by and large, you're going to get unemployment insurance. The alternative model that Denmark has done or the UK has done and a number of other countries have done is pay firms directly to allow their staff to work, to go home. So keep them employed, have the government assume responsibility for their salary during the period of the crisis. Or or a portion of their salary. Or or a portion of their salary, 90%, 80%, 70%. What have you? And I think in Australia there's a 20% model, but I'm not sure the details about that. Um, now, thinking through that, I actually think that the latter model, what I'm going to call the Danish model, is actually the more sensible one if we are concerned about what happens when we need to spin the economy up. Um, even though it's obviously more expensive, even though it obviously has these massive moral hazard problem, I think it's both the kindest 
and the most moral, but it's also the best place to ensure that the complex economic links between all of us don't suddenly disappear over the next six months. Well, can I jump in here? Because I think um, I I agree, I think, with the conclusion, um, but I want to I walk through it from um, you asked um, what kind of values-driven decisions are we talking about? I think that that is a perfect example of, of um, where we need to, to think about why, for example, we might choose between. Now, it's not, it's not binary, either or, but broadly speaking, as you say, direct subsidy to individuals or subsidies to, to businesses. Um, and there's a trade-off there because we can't do both to the same extent without um, spending more money than is possible. Um, so we need to have some framework for thinking through which should we prioritise. Um, now, on the broader theoretical point, and maybe now is not the time for political theory, but then again, maybe it is. Given, <laughs> it's given always it's, the time for political given, theory. It may, it may be, given the lack of available numbers, as I've been saying. Um, and I think if your theory uh, cannot deal with crises which are particularly if your political theory can't deal with crises, which are the reason that the state really exists, then perhaps the theory is inadequate. But leaving that to one side, I, I come down, I think, on the same side of that where we should where that priority should lie. And that is with keeping businesses alive. But I don't think that that is an economic argument that is reducible to the interests of individuals. I think it actually comes down to the real value of society. If you think about a business, the value that's contained in that business is not just um, you know, what it sells to its customers and what profit it banks for its, for its uh, owners. It's actually, in the, in the working of that business, there's its client relationships, its reputation, there's the knowledge contained within its existing workforce about how the business works, there's efficiencies that have developed over time, all of that kind of knowledge is, is irreplaceable. If those businesses die, businesses need to be created um, and then develop that value all over again. Society is similar. It's not just businesses that contain value, knowledge um, like that. It's all over society. Um, how we live in this world, this country together that is value that is developed at high cost. It's easy to destroy. It's hard to create. This is, I think, um, where, um, to put it in political theory terms, this is where conservatism adds some explanatory value. Um, and, no, it's because, absolutely. Um, and it's because um, these things, these institutions that we that we associate perhaps, we associate their justification with, say, another theory. And I'm thinking here of our liberties, we tend to associate them with liberalism and we tend to associate their justification with that theory. If you look at someone like, say, Peter Hitchens, who's a, you know, a hardcore pro proper, conservative, proper high, suitably pessimistic uh, uh, columnist from the UK. Conservative. I almost called him a Tory, but he hates the Tories. Um, but a proper conservative. And he said that he thought Alexander Johnson's intervention was, uh, was too heavy-handed because it went against uh, England's traditional liberties. And for this, he got 
called a liberal. And he was like, no, I'm not saying I support a theory. What I'm saying is that there are very concrete things that I have always been allowed to do that the government is now telling me I am not allowed to do. And he offered a defense in those terms. I I do think a liberal and a conservative could arrive in a very similar place. No, no, and and, and this is just just to, I I agree with everything that you said. Beautifully Um, said, Andrew. Because... And, and this is what worries me. So let's say there's a Australia-American a model and then a Danish-British model. Um, and what worries me is the idea that we are suddenly in, which is you can even freeze an economy for two weeks, let alone six months. You can even just stop and refund. The, the damage that that's going to cause to those complex social economic networks between not just you know people working in a company and the knowledge embedded in there, but between families, between communities, between my children's scouts organization, um, the local dick kick, the idea that we can pause or freeze and unfreeze an economy is absolutely, um, is obviously not true. And I think that when we're accounting for the damage from this um, effort, no matter how much the government tries to um, uh, counter the costs, those costs are going to be very, very real. Now, now you, 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 you've made the point that that's a conservative thing. I don't really think that's a conservative model. That's a model of the world that sees civil society as um, uh, first and foremost the most important place that we get our value in our relationships from and and the government has decided rightly or wrongly probably rightly to put a pause on civil society yeah it's a necessary part of conservatism as a theory it's not a sufficient description um you and i might differ on say um whether society has an independent existence um i would say that society unlike the economy is probably not reducible in any realistic sense to the individuals who constitute it. And I think this has a bunch of different things. You and I might differ on um, whether there is such a distinction as that between fact and value at all. Um, So there are different things that we could dispute, um, perhaps. But um, I think that when it comes down to it, when push has come to shove, we all know, we all know that we act first to secure the order within which we make our choices within which we live with our families, within which, um, basically within which our lives are made meaningful. Um, We act first for the most basic political good, which is order. And that's why I think is the theoretical conclusion that comes from this. Um, And I'm sure we'll get a chance to go back and forth about that forever. Well, absolutely. I, I, I hope that this, this podcast has illustrated a couple of things. It, it shows why debates are important and even though uh, we must uh, get in behind measures to curb pandemics, we must uh, – we are. it is not unpatriotic to question decisions being made by governments and to look at how decisions are made and what the science is behind it. I think we've established that ideas and values always matter – um, this idea that um, in a crisis everything becomes pragmatic is rubbish. Uh, and I think, Chris, that was um, exactly right at the end to remind everyone that the economy, uh, I put out a note to IPA members yesterday, I said um, people, some people, uh, those who 
we might call stupid, um, think of the economy as something like you know a, a pyramid. You know, it's just there, and you can you can stop adding to it, but you know you leave it for three months and you come back and it's still there. The the economy is is a miracle. It's like every day, as um, as Gary Wolfram said to our students at the IPA Academy um, last year. Um, you know, every day in New York. Everybody wakes up, goes down to their shop, and there's bagels there ready for them to just buy. Just not toilet paper. He said it's a miracle, and uh, and the fact that there isn't toilet paper now just shows that you know the the, the miracles can. Well, there is toilet paper now. There yeah, is toilet the, paper. The, 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 but the chain can be broken, and and yeah, so fragile. so it is, there is a degree of fragility there, and the idea that you can just stop start yeah. um, is is a nonsense. And uh, so, as I say, whether whether Trump and those pushing for something. Um, shorter uh, are proven to be, uh, whether that's feasible or not, I certainly sympathise with the sentiment. Uh, let, me, let me just give a... Can I just give a quick... Very quick quickly. Yep. ...before we move to um, culture picks as well? Because there, there's two parts. We cannot be in a situation that um, uh, it is viewed by the public or by policymakers that these are things that cannot be debated. And there's far too much in the last week or two of um, uh, hostility to even discussing the value of these trade-offs. Um, a lot of people are making a lot of big claims about the, um, the moral worth of even discussing these things. Even if I agreed with them, there is no way we are getting through this crisis without having a free and open discussion about the options ahead of us so that we can feed those ideas back to the policymakers that have to make those decisions. There's just no way that we're going to get through this crisis without doing that. Um, and, and the second point is that I think what we've seen in the last two days or last week or so is actually not just the fragility but also the resilience of some of our economic systems at least um, and, you know, I haven't been allowed to go to the supermarket in the last 10 days. But as I understand it, the um, uh, supply chains are reorientating themselves to supply us much better than they have since the initial surge. That is the optimistic thing, that we have a economic and political system that is actually capable of adaptation, even yeah. if it feels like it is sometimes. Yes, isn't it a nice optimistic note to finish on there? Isn't it remarkable what a free society can accomplish? Um, yeah, yeah. It just takes time. That's the problem. It takes time, and it's scary when it during the adjustment period. It is. Um, we have come to that part of the show where we talk books and culture. Um, Andrew, they shot his dog. <laughs> well, exactly. So we're talking here John Wick, right, which is probably the most successful new action film franchise, if you leave out the comic book ones and things. Um, it's an action franchise now, three movies long. There's a fourth one scheduled to come out next year, assuming that uh, coronavirus gets out of the way of, of shooting it. Um, uh, Keanu Reeves stars as uh, John Wick, who's a, a Russian or Eastern European hitman um, who... Basically, um, the Russian mafia kills his dog um, and he goes on now three movie long killing spree. I tried one day to watch John Wick and count the number of people that he kills in response and I gave up oh, no. after about half an hour. Um, 
Uh, what I like, numbers don't go that so high. <laughs> these these movies, the the third one is streaming on Netflix and on Foxtel um, at the moment, um, and these are these are stylish action movies. They're they're stripped down, minimalist in a way. Um, the storytelling uh, with it, and that's why Keanu Reeves is perfect for it. Um, I, as I was watching this third one, and I won't dwell on the point too long, noting that the time, but as I was watching the third one, I had this very strange idea come across me, which was that this movie reads like a parody of the rules-based international order. So you have this, <laughs> you have this. I, w- oh, I wonder how many other viewers had that thought, Andrew. Mm. <laughs> so I was sitting there, sitting there watching this, this, this movie and as, as the three movies have developed and that the world has been built up around John Wick, it turns out that he is part of this incredibly extensive society of, of hitmen such that on every corner of every city that he goes to in the world, there are people there to kill him. Um, it's basically everyone's in this club apparently, but the club has its own rules. It has these hotels that are safe havens where the killers can all go and get a drink. It has, and a, it has a governing body. It has a it has a gov, it has a governing body. It's, it's got a bureaucracy. Like in this third one, it's even got like a tel, like a tele Adju- the adjudicator, like a tele networking um, bureaucracy <laughs> that you can call up and give advice. Um, I wonder they, if they're all working from home. Um, and and so it's got all of these and and. The movie, if you watch the third one and just note the amount of times that someone appeals to the rules and what happens is that the rule gets broken because it doesn't have any real normative basis because these are killers. They're not engaged in something good. Their rules don't refer to anything other than mere convenience. Um, and it all, uh, you know, there, there's no reason why John Wick wouldn't break the rules to save himself. And I think this is worth pondering at a time of uh, institutional or near institutional collapse, um, <laughs> that what is it in the end that gives these things their force? Um, there's no, in the end, as the saying goes, there's no honour among thieves, there's no honour among hitmen, and yet this world takes place um, amid this incredible rules-based bureaucracy. So, so I what, think- what I want to know, what I want to know, or what I want to see next, is the prequel to the John Week series, so that they've demonstrated or show how this rules-based system actually builds up, <laughs> how how a group of Westphalian hitmen <laughs> yeah, came yeah. together. What? came together no, was there exactly. some great crisis I, I love thinking about stuff like this like one of my all-time favorites is um goldeneye the bond film goldeneye with pierce brosnan now the weapon that, that sean bean the bad guy has in this is a huge satellite dish that it comes up from under a lake now who yeah very built, hard to build can we see the movie about the building <laughs> of this weapon because um, that is extraordinary and of course parodied um, in uh, um, Mike Myers uh, Austin Powers yes. you know with the henchman where you get this cutaway scene of like a, a the wife of a henchman <laughs> yeah. being informed yeah, sure. that no he's one of the unlucky henchmen that's been killed by the hero and uh, yeah, I, I love thinking about that. And John Wick is like, if you take, and, and you probably won't think about this because the action sequences are, uh, are really interesting, well choreographed, um, it's quite, quite a stylish series of movies. But if you do just turn on your analytical brain for a moment, 
this world is and, actually and, fascinating. And you never turn your analytical brain <laughs> off. Uh, Chris, speaking of satellites, yeah. we've got seven minutes till we lose the satellite. Uh, so you go now, and then if you have to sign off, I shall, no um, I shall have mine so, at the end. So I have a similarly um, intellectualised reading of a popular movie. This is the Netflix movie The Platform, which uh, is a Spanish film that was just released, and you'll all be seeing up on your Netflix queues as well. It's a sort of horror sci-fi, and it is a very brutal horror film, so if you're not into that sort of thing, please don't watch it. But the idea is that there's a... It's basically a prison that um, uh, everybody's on a level of the prison and food comes from the top level, level level zero to level one, and everybody eats as much as they can all the way down hundreds of floors. And the argument is, and it's a sort of um, uh, Marxian type, type message in this movie, but the argument is that there's enough food for everyone but because the people on the upper levels gorge, the people on the lower levels have no food. The trick, though, is that you keep being reassigned and you don't know what level you're going to be reassigned to. So you might wake up on level 30, um, uh, but a month later, having spent a month on level 30, you're suddenly on level 132 or so forth. Now, um, the movie is perfectly adequate if you're into so, really so, brutal So that's horror. sort of the John, John Rawlsian... This is like yeah, a reverse veil of ignorance because you know that you're going to be reassigned, and it's a um uh and but you don't know where you're going to be reassigned to. Yeah, it's a collective and the action. The lesson problem. of the whole movie, the lesson of the whole movie is that Rawls was wrong because everyone acts in their own self-interest, even when they know that they could just as easily be in the bottom. And the whole the the conceit of the film, or at least one of the hints of the film suggest that it's all about will a social order naturally emerge from this <laughs> and it turned out it never does and um uh and the people stuck in the prison will never adopt the Rawlsian veil of ignorance well because they're actual pe- they're actual people like Rawls abstracts away all the things that make choosing important which is your personality um and and, and, and andrew this is this will be your favorite marxist and movie, and and he abstracts away time um, you know the the development of of these things over time. I mean, the the Rawlsian model is is wrong for for a host of reasons. So I look for I look forward to watching this one. Yeah, yeah, I, I, but it's uh, I I of course challenge the premise because I think there's been some a great because, series. Because the prison doesn't exist. No, because no, it's um, unrealistic. No, no, but we're, we're world building here. But um, I mean, this is uh, there's a lot of work in economics and there's a uh, empirical work, you know, of of um, looking at uh, people in uh, and testing them. And there's a there's a book I'm just looking for. I think it's called Humane Economics, um, and the fallacy was was Rawls's fallacy, and it, and it basically assumed, you know, uh, one round per game. And, yeah. you know, all... And it, and it assumes that you can't exit. Yeah, that's, that's right. It assumes one round per game, so people will act in their narrow short-term interests. But what what you find and what they do find in, in laboratory settings, and, you know, it's taken a sort of a couple of decades to think their way out of, you know, Rawls... Rawls's um, supposed slam dunk is, um, yeah, given, you know, we, we don't live in a, in a single round game. We live in, and this, what this should have proven is that in a multi-round game, you will actually work to establish some rules. And, and there is a natural uh, reciprocity 
um, that people look for in their in their trade uh, with other humans. So, in fact, the argument the argument of the the um, movie is that you don't, and you just have to figure out a way to appeal the game better. Um, uh, so you have to appeal to their moral claims or what have you. But you know, any, anyway, it's a it's a fun movie to watch if you can stomach the sheer violence of it, and it does raise these. <laughs> interesting um, uh, questions about political philosophy. Right. Well, I'm going for a, um, uh, a Netflix trifecta today. Um, it's, a sh- it's a series called uh, Messiah, uh, which I'm about uh, eight-tenths of the way through. And um, so no, no risk of big spoilers. Uh, but essentially the, the premise is that there is this um, uh, vaguely Middle Eastern-looking guy who turns up in Syria speaking Arabic, um, who performs a miracle and attracts a bit of a following in in Syria, and you think, okay, where's this going? Is this um, uh, because it's not even necessarily the second coming because it's in Syria, and of course he's addressing a group of Muslims, um, and uh, but the again the, as the series unfolds they add layer and layer of complexity it's it's actually a very well made show as uh, my friend griffo put me onto it um and uh, uh the acting is good they but they're not recognizable actors so you don't get you don't get thrown by it um because you know syria the isis is mixed up in all of this so uh, at least initially, so the FBI is interested, the CIA is interested, the White House is interested, and over the course of the series, this, this guy uh, El Masi, uh, as he's dubbed in Arabic, meaning literally the Messiah, he then moves into uh, to Israel, uh, and of course uh, the Israelis have an entirely different. Uh, set of issues when it comes to someone claiming to be the Messiah or or having followers who think that he's the Messiah. And then just to uh, complete the uh, the sweep of the uh, the religions of Abraham, he then moves to America, uh, into middle America and to a um, a small church in in outback Texas um, as the town is about to be destroyed by a tornado. So it's, um, and then there's the reaction of the, uh, the local preacher there. And, uh, these, he does just enough, just enough to make people think that there's miracles. The viewers left in some doubt, the C- you know, there's the, uh, the CIA and FBI characters are, are dealing with, um, with their doubts and, and skepticism, one of them sees it as a as a global conspiracy to confuse everybody, and the others, uh, who self-described elapsed Catholic, is perhaps a little bit more interested. So it's um, uh, there's a few themes in there, but I wouldn't want to overstate it. It's mainly entertainment from uh, created by a guy called Michael Petroni, who did the Book Thief, which is a movie I missed, but apparently made a bit of an impact at the time. I don't know the movie. I I did start watching. The Messiah, but it didn't. It didn't grab me for some for some reason. But uh, I think you know, it's 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 again, it's one of these things that's interesting to con- contemplate in the, the current moment. Um, how would it be received if uh, someone popped up right now um, and there was some credible reason for believing that he had warded off the coronavirus crisis? 
I think that I would become a follower um, because, <laughs> Times demand. Because, because I've run out of patience perhaps with this, with this crisis, I'd like it to be over. But I think um, you could see the appeal of that. Uh, uh, well, yeah. certainly I could. Look, this is certainly a time for uh, Pascal's wager, which is why wouldn't you pray? <laughs> There's no downside risk there. Uh, for <laughs> it scales easily. Yeah, pray, pray for deliverance and the more people doing it, the better. Chris, thanks so much for dialing in from the bunker. No, thank you. And um, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, thanks all to, also to Andrew Bushnell. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, for your, Chris. Um, wonderful contribution today. Thanks to uh, Josh and Mitch in the studio. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. And I and Chris and uh, some colleagues will be back next week. Come hell or high old water, no matter whether it's from home or wherever. Uh, with another edition of Looking Forward. Thank you for listening. 